Well, good morning, brothers and sisters and friends. I hope that you are, are doing well today. As you can see, we have many out traveling. It's the summertime. It's okay. Uh, but we're going to be going back into our uh, study in, in the Psalms, so the summer in the Psalms. So if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, turn to Psalm chapter 11. Psalm chapter 11, we're jumping right back in. And as you do so, just let me introduce it just a little bit. Remember, Psalm 11 is part of the grouping of 10 through 14. And in this particular group, we see and we hear David's reflections on the kind of people who engage in rebellion against God. <clears throat> in particular, it's a rebellion that is stated right there in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. So you see there, that's the rebellion of man, wanting to completely detach themselves from any kind of sovereign authority over themselves, particularly the sovereign God and creator of the universe. So let's detach ourselves from all things. And Psalm 10 through 14 is reflecting upon such a rebellion and such a wickedness that is not always uh, uh, it's certainly directed toward God, but it's also directed toward his people. So Psalm 10 brought us into, we read it this morning, it brings us into this gritty reality of raw emotion when we are faced with the wicked, especially when he opens up with that opening question in verse 1, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Right? There's, the, there's the, the question of that gritty reality of raw emotion when the wicked are coming against us. When we're suffering at the hands of the wicked. Nobody wants to think about that. Nobody wants to deal with it, but when we have to, when we're asked, when we have to deal with these things, then we, then we tend to ask these kind of questions. We tend to ask God, why do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself? Where, where are you, God? And, and David gets it right out there in a way that we all could feel, but with, he gives this quick analysis, though, of the wicked in, in, in Psalm 10. And the analysis is this, is that they are really, they are people who are, who are arrogant. They are religiously worshiping their own desires. They, they bless evil and the desires of others. Right? We talked about how uh, um, tolerance leads to acceptance and acceptance leads to blessing in a religious way. They, re, they renounce God. They pridefully say, as Psalm 10 says, there is no God. And as we said, what's the, what's the first step of humility? The first step of humility is recognizing there is a God, that God exists. He is there to acknowledge him and then your dependence upon him. And the wicked, they have a plan, and their plan is based upon their, their own self-perceived invincibility. Their plans to filled with lies and deception to crush the weak, the frail, the, the needy. They do not care what, they, what or who they damage or who they, they hurt or the pain they cause as long as they are getting what they want, their desires of what they worship, out of the deal. But along with that, we see the response of the righteous. The response of the, the righteous, though questioning in, in, in faith, questioning in faith, where are you, O God? They, they stand, as the righteous stand, in absolute contrast to the wicked. The righteous pray, and they walk humbly before, before the Lord. Maybe not exactly the kind of response that the flesh wants when the wicked come upon us, when we face injustice, that's not the response that, that we want when we, face in, uh, when we face injustice, but this is the response of the righteous. And as the response of the righteous, we'll see today in Psalm 11 that this is the response of our great and glorious King, Jesus Christ. And so the theme continues in this group, the wicked. 
In fact, in this little short psalm, it's mentioned four times. The wicked. But also we are given hope. We're given hope in the, the, in the character and the presence of God. And as Christians, we of all people, we, we shouldn't be surprised of the reality, though, of the wicked. We, we are faced with this reality of our own wickedness and our own sinful nature almost on a, on a daily basis. So we of all people then should know those who have no restraint, no Holy Spirit in a sense to, to uh, uh, convict and to bring them back to the gospel, that we understand man's depravity. We know we understand the levels on which evil can go. History proves that to us. Our own acts show us what they can do. And so we understand that what man does is wicked, and their wickedness often is perpetrated against other men, other women, children. We understand man's depravity, their immorality, their oppression, their injustice. But as much as we understand that, much more, Oh, so much more we should ex have experience and knowledge of the character and nature and presence and sovereignty and goodness of our God because there in him is where we find refuge. And so let's look at uh, Psalm chapter 11, starting in verse 1. To the choir master of David... In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals of, on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, and he loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall behold his face. A short psalm, yet straight to the point. Easily understood, and easily, if you look at it for just a while, you'll understand that it's divided in half by two themes. One commentator of Psalm 11 said that this is a, a psalm that comes straight from a crisis. And you can see the crisis right there in the text. But the context, Psalm 11, doesn't exactly tell us what the crisis came out of. It could be a number of different things from David's life. If you've read the story of David from, uh, from the Kings or Chronicles, you understand that there's all kinds of crisis that happens in his life. So certainly it could be from when King Saul was hunting him down out of sheer jealousy, or it could be referring back to the early narrative or story of his own son Absalom trying to kill him like in Psalm 3 through 9. Either way, Psalm 11 is an outcry of one who is suffering in anguish and is in a very tight and tough spot. In a way, it's sort of like when we are in a crisis or we face a crisis or we face a, a, a moral dilemma upon us when people are pressing against you. Which way are you going to, to go? And we would sometimes would debate with ourselves, should I go this way? And if I go this way, this is, going to be the, this is going to be the easy road. It's going to be the easy road where I'm going to be liked, I'm going to be popular, people aren't going to come after me, I'm not going to lose my job, I'm going to be able to, in the eyes of men at least, save face. Or I could take this road, this other road that, where I know I'll stand out, where I know that I will make enemies. I know that my future will quite possibly be bleak in this life, but I also know that the Lord will be with me. 
And maybe you've never had that kind of dilemma or you've ever been put in that kind of situation. We're not going and we're not out looking for those kinds of problems. But when those things are forced upon us, then, then we must make the decision on which road we are going to do and which road we are going to go. Maybe you have a boss that might ask you to do something that is immoral. You know that you have to take a stand. Not only something immoral, but something that's against your conscience, that you have to take a stand. More and more people in our country are having to take a stand in order to not violate their own consciences. Every year, the Supreme Court is settling cases over that very issue where Christians are being forcibly compelled to do things that they don't want to do that violates their conscience. It's go- it, it could happen. It's, it, is, it is happening. And if you take a stand, you know at, le- at the very least you might lose your job. At the very best you might lose your job. Not to mention your reputa- reputation, friendships, family, everything. Nowadays it becomes harder and harder to be faithful as a Christian in the workplace or at school in this ever-increasing secular world. Christians at the average university or college now in the United States are faced with an onslaught of anti-Christian immorality that is not just pervasive among sinful students, but it is institutionalized and taught. It is taught as being right, it is taught as being good, it is taught as to be accepted. And it is taught in a way that every student must take these classes. It's called New Student, student Orientation. DEI, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, has invaded almost every corporation, educational institution, and government offices in order to rewire us to believe that some forms of racism is not racism. Equal opportunity is considered racism. An equal outcome for all must be manipulated according to a made-up intersections of victimhood within every system of every institution to determine who gets hired, who gets accepted, and who's rejected regardless of merit. We have seen the surge of the lunacy of the sexual revolution that's everywhere at all times. You you can't get away from it. It's no longer Pride Month, but it's Pride all the time. You cannot get away from it. We see the insanity of the, the grooming of children in homosexual lifestyles and relationships and transgender ideology. And if you stand up to resist them in any way, you may be crushed. You may be marginalized. You may even be arrested. You may even be arrested. We have seen these examples. We have seen the murdering of children in the womb, abortion, now being relabeled, has been relabeled now for years as health care and as reproductive rights. Under modern health care laws now in our countries, Americans have been coerced through our tax dollars to participate in such a diabolical and evil industry of death. Last year, we know Roe versus Wade, praise God, has been struck down in our country. And I've heard numbers like since then, 3%, only 3% of abortions have truly stopped, which is quite significant, by the way, compared to what it was. Yet abortion is still allowed, even in most states. And even at the federal level, it is still being pushed hard here and all over the world. Churches have been labeled as hate groups and parents are considered terrorists. And certainly we can go on and on and I'm getting riled up. I can feel it in me. We haven't even spoken about religious persecution around the world and so many other things that just grieve us on a daily basis. And if we allow it, in a way, it could, it could tempt us, even as Christians, to give into a, into a, a fear and intimidation that, that is thrust upon us. That's what these things are doing. There's a fear and intimidation that's being thrust upon us. To quit, to give up, to flee, to, to, to run. 
And we understand in these things, we do have a lot to lose. I get that. We all have a lot to lose. But Psalm 11 is showing us that that through David's crisis, whatever that crisis may be, that verse 4, right? Whenever the foundations uh, seem, or I think it might be verse 3, that when the foundations of everything that seem to be crumbling around him, when the foundations of all the society and all things, life and culture and everything seem to be crumbling around him, that as God's people we have a choice whether to be in flight in fear or we are to take refuge by faith in a foundation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We do not presume, brothers and sisters, that we live in extraordinary times. We don't want to think that. We don't live in extraordinary times. Throughout Christian history, throughout history, the church has always faced tides of cultural wickedness. But certainly we want to acknowledge that we do live in a chaotic time. Certainly a chaotic time that's, that is uh, new to our own very existence and experiences. And we don't know how it's going to play out, just as Christians before us have never known how it's going to play out. But praise God, we have his word. And Psalm 11 just steps right in for us. And it steps right in this summer, in our Summer in the Psalm series, and it shows us how we are to respond and react as well as exposing to us, showing us that this is how you are going to be tempted. This is how you are going to be tempted to flight in fear. So before we get into the good stuff of the encouragement, we have to look at the negative. So verses 1 through 3, we see in our first point this flight in fear. You've heard times, you've heard, and, uh, you've heard before that in times of crisis or in, in great stress, the human response is what? Flight or fight, right? You've heard that before. It's kind of like when the uh, adrenaline kicks, right? And, right you're going to fight or you're going to flight. Flight is the, the get out of there to get out of the situation, to avoid contact, to, to, to run. And, and most of the time, that should be our response in those, in those very serious, dangerous moments. We should, we should flee. But sometimes you do have to fight. And sometimes there is no other choice. Sometimes it is the moral thing to do. It is the right thing to do to not only save yourself, but to save others and to remo- remove the threat. But in this first point, it's certainly about self-preservation to flight, but this is a flight in fear and not fight. Now, we shouldn't think that the temptations given in verses 1 through 3 is about tucking tail and running, but we should read it more, we should read it a little bit more broadly. Broadly as a, a temptation to to leave that place of refuge that he talks about in verse 1. To leave that place of refuge where God has appointed for us to hide and to find refuge when facing great evil. Like the soldier who wants to run out of their foxhole during an artillery barrage. Right? It's, like, it's, like, it's like human instinct to, to get out of the foxhole and to run for, for safety when reality, the truth is, and this is what good soldiers do, they tell the other ones that want to run out to stay in their foxholes, or they push them in there, or they force them to stay in. Because it's where they will find a better chance of survival as the artillery is raining down. And so verse 1 says, in the Lord I take refuge. So he's not He's not running. This is how you know. He's not running. He's finding safety. He's finding harbor. He's finding shelter in the Lord, in Yahweh. But he also says, How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to the mountain? And there's the temptation, isn't it? The temptation is to flee like a bird in the storm. The temptation, whether it is in his own heart or actually being said by the wicked to to run is to fly and to take flight and to get out of there. To give up trying to be the man that God has called you to be and the things that he has called you to do. 
to flee to your mountain, which means to leave the place of refuge that God has given, to find other places of refuge. And here are all the reasons he gives in verses 2 through 3 why or how he's being tempted and why he should flee and take flight. And first you see in verse 2, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string. And again, here's, here is the ongoing theme of the wicked. And, and again, it, it doesn't just refer to, to all sinners theologically here. We know that's true. We know that's correct. But, but this means particularly the, the men and women who have set themselves against the Lord which you can hear in the descriptive language of this text. These wicked are doing what? They're bending the bow. The arrow is, is knocked to the string and ready to be, to be shot at, at his people, at the king. It's like having a, a loaded gun pointed at the target. One of the, the first rules of firearm safety is you, you never point a gun at something that you don't want to destroy. And the same goes with a, with a bent bow, with an arrow on the bow. You never bend it and aim it at anything that you do not want to kill or to, to, to destroy. And this, so this, this image of the bent bow and the arrow is, is, is meant to illustrate the imminent danger, the threat the wicked have for violence against the king and the Lord's people. And this is a direct threat with a deadly weapon in order to intimidate it's to intimidate. To intimidate to do what? To leave the refuge. To flee the refuge. And now we know that not all situations have this same kind of deadly threat, but nonetheless, intimidation to cause fear is still always hard and difficult, and we understand that temptation that it causes us to want to just flee. The second reason he gives us why we should fly, or how we're being tempted to fly, in verse, at the end of verse 2, it says that they shoot in the dark at the heart, or the upright in heart. So here's the method of the wicked, that, that you will get hit or shot at when you, when you least expect it. It's like an ambush shot in the dark in the back. There's, there's no rules of engagement for the wicked when they are going toward or against the upright in the heart. And the exact opposite of the definition of the wicked are those here, the, the upright of the heart. They have an intentional life direction and desire and determination for the glory of God through the gospel obedience. But brothers and sisters, listen, I am not a prophet and I'm not telling you to be paranoid. I'm not telling you to be monastic, which is the exact opposite of this passage. That would be flight. However, we should understand that on some level, until Christ returns, we need to have a mindset of a wartime living. We need to have a mindset that we are in a war, a spiritual warfare with real darts and real arrows that are being aimed at us. And it should be sobering to know that the arrows could be pointed at you right now. And we'll never know what direction that they'll come flying from. And doesn't this remind you, as it reminded me this week, of the same language that the Apostle Paul employs in Ephesians 6, showing us how necessary and how important it is for us as Christians to take up the full armor of God. And certainly there's more pieces than just this, but the shield of faith. The shield of faith is given to us to do what? To extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The method of the wicked and the evil one striking from the shadows with their arrows that are trying to destroy the very structures of our lives and even society. And which brings us to the last reason to flee from the wicked, or the last temptation to flee from the wicked, verse 3, is because if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do. And this gets us back to how I introduced the passage. Now, as Christians, we see all these things happening around us. We have this temptation. What can the righteous do? And this is taking the, the crisis, as it seems, to a, to a whole new level from, from violence and 
to utter destruction of, the, of, of all the foundations. This has, a, again, an illustration. It, it, it envisions for us, gives us the, the imagery of the destruction of walls and cornerstones because the foundations of a building are being destroyed. And if the, the, the walls are being torn down around the righteous, how can they defend themselves? How can we defend ourselves against the attacks of the wicked? So the idea here of the foundations in biblical poetry generally means the moral foundations of society, the pillars upon which moral order of the world rests, which protects humans from the chaos and evil. And when the foundations have been destroyed in a city, have been destroyed in the city, then the city becomes a jungle of wild animals. And the wicked who gave us this situation stands back and then asks you, what can the righteous really do? It's not hard to make the comparison once again to what we are seeing around us today. The rising crime rates, lawlessness in the streets of so many of our cities, drug abuse at its highest, and we can go on and on, and underneath all of that, brothers and sisters, is a nefarious, a nefarious plan that is intentional to destroy the foundations of a society. Gone, gone are removed the basic building blocks of a foundation that our society was once built upon, once built upon biblical principles of morality, biblical principles of, of virtue, and even the very existence of God would bring about a common restraint among men. But when that basic foundation has been obliterated, can we really be surprised by the utter devastation that this causes and continues to snowball before us? What? can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? So here's the great temptation. Then take flight. This is our place. This is our place. You, you take flight. What can we really do? Do we just keep voting and that's all we do? Do we flee? Do we quit? Do we give up? Do we run away? Oh, brothers and sisters, I think you understand and you know the answer to this question. And the answer to our question is not fight. The answer to this question, as we will see and we'll begin to see, is that we look to our Savior, Christ. That though Jesus was tempted, he was tempted himself with the same advice. He was given the same advice. You need to leave. You need to flee. In Luke 13, verse 31, the Pharisees came to him. The Pharisees came to him. And they warned him and said, you need to leave. Because Herod wants to kill you. Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus, I'm sure, he's so quite aware of the danger that he's in. He, understand, he understood the intensity and the strength of wicked and evil around him. He knew what evil was going to do at its fullest and its most wickedest point was going to come upon him on the cross. But even there, Jesus continued to stay. What did he say? He said, go tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and on the following day, for, I, for it cannot be a prophet would perish away from Jerusalem. What is Jesus saying there? I am fully confident in my Father's plan. I'm not leaving. I'm not fleeing. Thanks for the advice. In John chapter 17, Jesus was counseled by his disciples, telling him, hey man, the, the Jews are going to stone you. The Jews are going to, to stone you. We need to, we need to get out of here. We need to maybe tone it down just a, just a little bit. And then a little bit later, Jesus or Peter tries to talk some sense into Jesus when, when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to the cross. And Peter says, I, no, you don't need to go to the cross. But every single time Jesus has tried to, tried to give, give him some advice, 
some counsel to flee and to take flight. Jesus is nor, neither swayed nor is he deterred from the will of his Father for him. So brothers and sisters, we who follow Jesus today, we still hear the same counsel to quit. We still hear the same counsel to, to lose hope. The foundations have been destroyed. Take flight. Save yourself. Eat, drink, and be merry. Fly away. Because the situation around you may seem hopeless. The bow, the bow is bent. The tide is coming in. Save yourself. We face this temptation, and this temptation causes us to do what? It causes us want to isolate ourselves, doesn't it? To isolate ourselves, to remove ourselves from others, and then in our heart to, to just reject everything, to reject everything, even, even some good things, to reject everything in culture regardless if it has anything to do with godliness or the gospel. We try to flee and take flight through nostalgia. Through nostalgia, we want to just look back and believing that life was better back then. And yes, there are ways, I will admit, that they were better back then. And that's maybe true. And yet the same can be said today, that things are better today than they were then in some ways. And yet looking back in a way always comes at the expense of airbrushing over the evil and wickedness of the past. We cannot do that. We must not do that. We do not want to check out in that way. And then there's the temptation to take flight emotionally. To emotionally, to just become cold and callous toward everything and everyone. It's easy to forget the humanity. It's easy to forget the humanity of people who are made in the image of God, though, though they are being wicked and acted wickedly. And even though that they may be suffering by their own hand and by their own decisions on what they make and the things that they say, we still must remember that they were created in the image of God and have that humble prayer that Jesus had. They know not what they do. Forgive them. We should regularly ask ourselves in that humility, have we regularly ask ourselves, have I received every consequence and judgment for every done, dumb thing I have ever done? And the answer to that question is a firm no. By God's grace and mercy, what has he done? We have not faced every consequence that we deserved. And therefore, we don't want to be a people that are so cold or callous or emotionally removed or in the past or whatever it may be. We don't want to be people that do not withhold mercy and compassion and become cynical toward everything. Jesus did not isolate, did he? Jesus did not take flight Jesus didn't look back to some time in the Old Testament as being a better day than his very own, did he? And he didn't withdraw. He pressed on. And he looked toward the cross, didn't he? Before himself, in the immediate, he was looking toward a, a worse time. Praise God for our benefit. But Jesus also looked forward to the consummation, didn't he? And so should we. Brothers and sisters, we must be careful not to take flight in fear when the foundations are shaken. Flight is a form of unbelief because it is substituting trusting for God for something else, for self-preservation. And yet, we now can turn and we can look at the refuge and our perfect example is our steadfast, that is steadfast, and that is Christ. So if, we, if we're not to take flight, like the bird, to the mountain, but yet remain steadfast as our Savior Jesus, then we, then we turn now to the rest of the psalm, to the second point this morning, and that is this, 
faith's foundation. Faith's foundation. In verses 1 through 3, we heard the reasons why we should flee. The temptations. This is why you should flee. This is why you should take, you should take flight from the refuge. Jump out of the foxhole that God has given you. But now in verses 4 through 7, David shows us his response of faith and why he will stay in the refuge of his Lord, of our Lord. And that is how faith drives us to find refuge in the Lord. As we will see, his heart and mind is not upon the strength and power of his enemy. It is not in what they can do or what they, what they have done or, or what he could lose. It's not in his own strength, what he can muster, what, what people he can gather around him to protect him, but rather what does he turn his heart and mind toward? He turns his heart and mind toward to how the victory belongs to the Lord. And so let's go through his reasons. Verse 4, the Lord is holy. The Lord in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. What is he saying here? He is declaring the presence of the Lord, who is sovereign king over heaven and earth. You know, sometimes when we hear these great words, such as omnipotence and, and, and omnipresence, that we, we sometimes can disconnect ourselves from, him, from them. But not the word of God here, does it? The word of God does not disconnect these words, these meanings, right? The omnipotence and omnipresence of God, which I think we're seeing in this text, in that verse, he shows how they're uniquely linked, God's power in his presence to what? To his people. And verse 4 is meant for us to understand those very truths in a very personal way. That in a, a very personal and powerful relationship that, that the Lord has with his people, that he is with his people. The, the, the usage of the, the temple, the holy temple there. David's not referring to the earthly temple because guess what? It wasn't built yet. David is referring to the, the temple of the Lord, the holy temple, the heavenly temple where the Lord dwells. And what is representative of the, of the heavenly temple, the holy temple? And that is what? God's sovereign power and God's holy presence. And when the earthly temple is built by Solomon, what does the early temple or the earthly temple represent? It represents the, the Lord's presence and power with his people. Our Savior Jesus Christ, he, he understood this. He, he who, who fulfilled all that the temple overshadowed or foreshadowed could trust, he could trust in the same truth that the Father is unchanging in his power and in his presence with him. And so, brothers and sisters, we could ask ourselves, do we, do we also not have the same unchanging power and presence of the Lord with us through Jesus Christ, our King, and his Holy Spirit, who now indwells within our hearts? The Father reminds us here, or excuse me, faith reminds us here, it reminds us of this glorious truth of God's word. And that is this. God is sovereign. He is powerful. And in that, his presence is with you. No wonder Romans 8 is written in such a way. Who or what can stand against me? And the second is in verse 4. It says, his eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. So when, it's, when it seems like God is, is doing nothing and we're faced with that temptation to, to take flight as the, the wicked is lurking in the shadows as if no one sees them, here is the truth. Here is the truth that the Lord sees all and that he's carefully watching over the world of men. And he gives all men and women this ample time to show who they are by their actions. The wicked think that they can shoot unseen from the shadows and get away with it. And yet, as David declares in this poetry, is this, is that the Lord sees us in the dark and what we consider to be the secrets. He's watching our lives and he knows our, our hearts. Jesus himself demonstrated this. He understood this in the way that he said, 
he understood the heart of man in this earthly earthly life. John writes this in in John chapter 2, that Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knows the heart of man. And when John saw Christ exalted in heavenly glory, he reports in Revelation 1, 14, 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. And faith here, faith's foundation then reminds us that all of our hearts are laid bare and opened before the Lord. That he sees all. That it's open before him. All desires are known before him. And when we stand before Jesus, we see, we understand that we stand before a God who sees, who knows, omniscient. And the third reason in verses five through six, the Lord tests the righteous. But his soul hates the wicked of the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur. And a scorching wind shall be a portion of their cup. And so from his throne, the Lord judges the evil and the good. Even the righteous are not exempt from the Lord's judgment. If the Lord sees all, and if he is reigning from his holy throne, then as sovereign God, he is the measure of all righteousness. And he will measure everyone according to his standards. No one will escape his justice. You know, we tend to shy away from this kind of strong language in verses 5 and 6. But the Lord does not merely love the sinner but hate the sin. That, That is not being said here. It says that he hates the wicked. And he hates those who who scorn him, who disregard his law, who trample on his people. And we shouldn't be surprised to read about God's righteous anger, God's righteous indignation, in such a way with such strong language. If God fiercely loves his holiness, glory, and his people, then he will fiercely love what is good, beautiful, and pure. And therefore, he must then hate everything that is set against that, that is set against his holiness, that is set against what is good and beautiful and glorious and holy. And we can understand this in some ways. If you love your family then anyone who attempts to corrupt, distort, or hurt your family, then in one way or another, you will come against them with a holy hatred. Love is the motive of the Lord's hatred of the wicked. There is no such thing as as God's love if he just tolerates wickedness and sin. God's love for the righteous must be matched for his hatred of the wicked. And for this reason, it is God's glory to hate sin and the wicked who rebels against him. He would be less God if he was not a God of wrath. And his love for his people would be a fraud, brothers and sisters, it would be a fraud if he was not equally passionate, had passionately hatred for the wicked. And so therefore the righteous judgment will be fierce. It says he will rain down fire and sulfur, scorching wind, just like he did when he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember that in Genesis 19? And why? Why did he do that? Because in these two cities, they they represented a vile wickedness that rejected the law of God. And then it was manifested in their outcome, right? In their actions. It was manifested in a gross perversion of nature and creation and the destruction of the foundations of society, right? I mean, you need to go back and and read that. The, The foundations of those cultures were being destroyed. Also, there was a willful attack of God's people. And so God rained down his judgment 
upon them. And this truth is not something that's just isolated to the Old Testament, but it's in the New Testament as well. This kind of imagery of God's judgment and fire and wrath is also found in the New Testament. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. But by the same word, the heavens and earth now exist are being, what? Stored up for fire, being kept for a day of judgment and destruction upon the ungodly. And so faith is reminding us, right? Our faith's foundation is reminding us of this sobering truth from God's word that the Lord will pour out his righteous wrath of fire upon the ungodly. And brothers and sisters, again, we don't boast in that. We don't glory necessarily in that, but it gives us enduring strength knowing that our sovereign God will make all things right in the end. And lastly, verse 7. I love this verse. I have fell in love with this verse this, this week. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall behold his face. Is there any confidence, is there any question, excuse me, of the confidence that David has here? Or where his confidence is to be found? There are three prepositional phrases firmly grounded here, rooted in the knowledge of God's righteous, holy character in his righteous deeds. And that's the first one, right? The Lord is righteous. And it means this, that God is just. Righteousness is synonymous with his justice. God will always do what is right. You hear me on that, brothers and sisters? I know there are times where we can struggle, right? This is where we can say, God, where are you at in this stuff? God will always do what's right. He will always do what's good. He is righteous, he is holy, and he will always do what's right. People will do things wrong. People will get things wrong. Even the best among us can be wicked and evil. Some of the greatest characters of all of history that we look up to, can be some of the most evil people at times. But God will always, and has always, will always do what's right and good. Well, we can believe that, man. We can just let that seed just dip deep into our hearts. And truth, people will disappoint them. You will disappoint people, but God's righteousness, God's goodness will never disappoint you. Unless you're planting your life on something else. Unless you're planting your life somewhere else. We are fallen, living in a fallen world. We can't get around that, but God never disappoints. Marry that truth of God's righteousness with the truth of living in a fallen world that even though the foundations of this world are being destroyed and that God's wrath is being shown in because, of, because of that, and we can trust that God is always going to do what's right. I remember a long time ago, I read a tweet of someone. I'm not on Twitter, so this is a very long time ago. And the tweet says this, it said, my wife and I just found out that my son has cancer. And God is still good. And those two things do not contradict one another. That's faith's foundation. That's saying God is righteous. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But that's faith's foundation. And second, it says he loves righteous deeds. This means he loves the people who by grace do righteousness who are obedient which ultimately brothers and sisters it points us to his son doesn't it because his son was perfectly obedient and righteous and we know because of the righteousness of christ what that has been imputed to us what is that it means now that we're righteous he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of god he loves righteous deeds. All glory be to Christ, huh? All glory be to Christ. And third, the crescendo. The crescendo of the psalm 
the upright shall behold his face. And there's a promise. It's a promise that we receive by faith, isn't it? And what a great joy then it is to know that those who are upright, those whom by his grace he has saved, those who have taken the shield of faith even when the arrows come, those who have endured and those who have persevered, is what? Is that we shall see his face. And when you see his face, when you behold his face, hear it. Hear this, that in that moment you will know that it was worth everything. That it was all worth, that it was all worth it because he is worthy. We shall see his face. We contemplate that for just a moment, right? We will see his face. And so this is what faith means. It's believing what is absolutely true. It's not some shot in the dark, but it's something, faith is absolutely true. It's believing what is absolutely true about the character and nature of God Faith that is firmly planted on the foundations of God's word. And when we think about the threats and the actions of the wicked and, in, and with this perspective, there's still, as we have a perspective from God's word of this bright and shining truth of what God has said, that in his presence he is with us. And that he is sovereign. His sovereignty and his power is for us. His righteousness is displayed in his righteous judgment, and his judgment is coming. Which reminds us of the consummation when Jesus will come back, brothers and sisters. And when he comes back, he will judge the wicked. But those who trust in him will behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So flight or faith? The wicked, and sometimes even our own hearts and natures, want us to flee. It wants us to retreat. But faith says, trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. And in all your ways, acknowledge him. Brothers and sisters, we do not know what these days hold for us. But we can be sure of this, and we can be confident of this that we are called to be faithful in following our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that in his presence, he is with us. We can endure. Because we're con our confidence is not in our own strength and are not in our own abilities to keep ourselves, but our confidence is in a sovereign, sovereign loving, gracious, heavenly Father. And so let us not forget that in the Lord, I take refuge. And all God's children say,